0: Before this episode of Our Future Now begins, we want to let you know that it contains depictions of police violence that could be disturbing for some listeners. Our Future Now is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Hello, everyone. I'm Natalie Meebane. I'm the co-founder of the National Children's Campaign. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than our previous ones. Today. We're going to have some of the Black members of our team tell their personal stories related to police interactions. Some of these stories are going to be from personal experience, and others will be experiences of their loved ones. The reason for this episode is to give a little bit of insight of what it's like to be Black in this country. And be policed. It is in no way meant to condemn every police officer in saying that they are abusing their power or that they are hurting people. There are many, many police officers who every day wake up and do nothing but help their communities, who took this job to protect and serve all. And there are many that do that every single day. The purpose of this episode is to let you know that the pain of police violence doesn't dissipate with time. It compounds with new experiences and that that pain and those stories are real. We are discussing today and on other episodes the system of policing in this country and why we must transform that system to create a police force that makes Everyone feels safer. Instead of a few, we must work together in order to create a police force in this country that truly protects and serves everyone equally. Normally, in our episodes, we always call on you to take action at the end, something that you can do to help on these issues. Today, we simply ask that you listen with your heart. The first time I really learned that I had something to fear from the police was in January of 2004. I was a freshman at University of Maryland College Park. It was the first weekend that everyone was back on campus in January. It was really cold, really cold that night, like 20 degrees outside. And a friend of mine, called me up, and he said, hey, a few of us are going to go to see the new Tupac movie, Tupac Resurrection. Do you want to come out? I decided to stay in and just clean my dorm room, get myself organized for the new semester that was starting. So a few of my friends went, and they saw the movie. And when they were leaving the theater, one of them starts joking around one of the guys, and he starts chasing one of the girls in the group, almost like playing tag. If you're wondering, we're all 18. So, you know, kids, he's chasing her on the car, just jokingly, like, get in the car, get in the car. And she's just, like running away from him, like, no, leave me alone, leave me alone. And they're joking around. And eventually, he kind of like picks her up and like, puts her in the car, like, you know, they're just playing around with each other. So apparently, a police officer somewhere in that area around the theater saw this and thinks like, oh, no, this woman might be in trouble. This guy might be chasing her, you know, maybe she doesn't know him. And so he starts to follow them, doesn't turn on a siren, doesn't pull them over, just follows them. They didn't know at all that they were being followed. They decide to stop at the McDonald's on Route one. And as they're in the drive-through, out of nowhere, a whole bunch of cop cars pull up, guns drawn, everything, telling them, "Get out the car get out the car and they have no idea what's going on and they start pulling them out the car and putting them on the ground this is a group of men and women it's about five of them I think they still don't know what's happening they don't know why they're getting stopped they're terrified obviously so one of them picks up one of the you know young women who's on the ground and takes her into the police car and the police officer is saying something like are you okay what's happening? Are you kidnapped or something? He was like, no, these are my friends. These are my friends. And she's repeating out completely. These are my friends. These are my friends. Like, what's happening? What's happening? And the police officer is, you know, keeping her in the car. And then her other friend, who is still another young woman, is still on the ground with the gun to her head. If the concern was that these women could have been taken, could have been kidnapped, right? Why would you have what you think is the victim, on the ground with a gun to their head. The girl who they took into the police car, she's now in there one-on-one. And now that she is by herself, the police officer who's talking to her in the car, a man, starts coming on to her. And she still doesn't know what's going on, right? She's crying. She's trying to explain, like, these are her friends. Everything's fine. Why are they stopping them? What is going on? Like, what is happening? And her friends are on the ground with guns to their heads. So I don't know how long this goes on for. And eventually, somehow, maybe they start listening to her that she actually was fine, that she had not been taken, that these were her friends. They went to go see a movie at Arundel Mills. They're coming back to get some McDonald's. They go to University of Maryland. They just want to go get food and go home. And eventually, they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and they let them up. And they're just really upset, as you can imagine. And even if you think, well, look, that was a mistake, right? They were trying to help this person. Why did they have the other woman laying on the ground with a gun to her head if she was supposed to be the kidnapped victim that they were supposedly thinking? And why was the other woman separated from them and not asked questions like, what's happening here, but instead, while she was alone, sexually harassed. And so that was my freshman year of college. And I knew that that probably was not going to be the last time that I knew that there was
1: something to fear from the police. Hi, my name is Victory Wobbletoe. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I identify as a Black woman. So when I was first kind of invited to share a story that I had, I was kind of hesitant, I guess, just because I didn't feel safe necessarily, because when we watch the news, we see retaliation from the police and American systems against people who have outwardly spoken out against discriminatory and racist actions that they've placed on groups of people. So I didn't feel the safest doing so. But then I kind of realized that that was what I wanted to talk about, I guess. I think that the police and American systems have a really, really strategic way of making people believe that they are good and that they benefit society when in reality they were based on these oppressive and racist, ableist, colorist, all of these systems that are used to oppress and like maintain some sort of superior status to a lot of marginalized communities. When I think about that, I often think about my brother. And when he was in his early teens, he started getting, people would call it, like, caught up in the criminal justice system. And I remember as a child, like, being mad at him for, I guess, turning himself into a statistic. Because at that point, I didn't understand how systemically these things work and how they target Black men, I guess, from when they're super, super young. As I got older, I started looking into it because I was like, okay, so if this is happening to my brother and this is happening to my cousin and my godbrothers, there's some sort of common denominator. And that's how I found out about the school-to-prison pipeline. The school-to-prison pipeline is basically an epidemic where Black and brown children are put into the hands of the criminal justice system more than their white counterparts just because schools are not well-equipped or teachers are not well-equipped to treat black children and black students the way that they should be treated, the same way that they treat their white students and white children. So once I figured out that my brother was affected by the school-to-prison pipeline, I looked a lot more into it, and I started doing a lot of research about the criminal justice system in general and seeing how they do a lot of things intentionally to make it seem like instead of it being the system's fault, it is the fault of the individual. So let's say that someone steals. They're like, okay, well, it's the individual's fault rather than these systems that have caused this individual to live under the poverty line, rather than educational access being taken away from this individual, rather than affordable healthcare being given to this individual. It is the problem of the person and that person has to pay, even though they were set up from the very beginning to fail. I understood that my brother and I and my entire family for that matter were simply seen as targets just because we were Black people living in America. It also made me realize that once I have kids, they will also be seen as targets, no matter what I feel for my kids. Like when I hold them and sing to them, when they cry, when they smile, when they laugh, they are targets because they are Black children. Hopefully they will grow up to be Black adults in America. So no matter what I see in my children, these systems and these police officers will see that they are Black and will see that they are a threat and will act accordingly because that's how the system is set up to hurt Black and Brown people over and over. And even as a child, I remember very vivid memories multiple times of playing outside in either my front yard or a friend's front yard. And anytime we would see police going by or like Hear the sirens or see the lights, we would automatically go to hide, whether that was in someone's garage or behind a car or something. It was kind of like an unspoken rule. And it wasn't ever like, oh, if we're in someone else's front yard, you have to go run to your house. It was just like, get somewhere so you don't get killed by the police. And I think that this is a clear display of the type of fear that the police system evokes in even young children. We understood that we didn't have the privilege of acting like kids like we had to grow up really quickly to survive in america to just stay alive we couldn't just play in our front yards we had to think okay if a police officer comes riding down the street where are my exits looking even now i'm 21 i'm going into my senior year at the university of north texas and i still have the same fear of the police with everything i do i'm always kind of looking over my shoulder when i'm driving when i'm walking And because of this, I know that the system is working exactly how it was intended to work. It's relentlessly pursuing our destruction just for being. And I know that if it continues as is, Black lives will not be sustainable in this country.
0: When I was a junior in college, thankfully, there was a party that I missed. Unfortunately many of my friends were not so lucky somebody was having a party and apparently there was a lot of noise because well that's what parties do often <laughs> and a neighbor who was somewhere else in the building had called police and say hey there's a lot of noise there's this party could you come shut it down so the police come and they tell them hey we got to shut this down we got a complaint of the noise." And they asked to see who lives there, who's the person whose apartment this is. So he comes forward and you would think that would just be the end of it. They would just tell him, hey, we got to shut this down. Instead of just telling him, hey, we have to shut this party down, they take out their guns. And in front of everybody in the party, people are still inside the apartment. They take out their guns and they immediately start pistol whipping him and they start beating him in the face with their guns together. And everyone is in shock and everybody's screaming and everybody's running and everybody's terrified because they're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And they run out of the apartment, run down the steps to meet police officers who are pepper spraying them and beating them with the batons as they try to flee. So if you were there and you were running out at that time, you got pepper sprayed on the steps and beaten in the head with batons as you tried to run. So after all of this, whenever they were finished, I guess pistol whipping him, not quite sure how long they did that for, they then arrest him and charge him with felony assault on a police officer. And that's what happens. You get beat to a pulp and then get charged with a felony. So then they tried to get him expelled from school. He was an engineering student, scholarship student, and he had to fight with every tooth and nail trying to get these charges dropped. And I'm still trying to remember if he ever got the charges dropped in the end, but to have even charges brought against you, especially serious charges, when you were the one brutalized and assaulted and knowing that your friends were too. The thing about police terrorism is that you don't have to be the one hurt or the one killed for it to harm you. That's how terrorism works. There are plenty of people who are still very much impacted emotionally by the impacts of September 11th. And they don't have to have been there. And that is how police violence works, is that you know that it could be you and that it likely will be you.
2: My name is John Norton, and I am the vice president of communications for the National Children's Campaign. I'm an African-American male. So I am, in many respects, I've kind of been born into knowing about those challenges. My mother is Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's been the D.C. representative for the last 30 years, but she was actually involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So I kind of grew up knowing that there was a fraught relationship with the police. And I was told by my father, when it comes to police, you have to be as calm as possible. You have to be as um, slow with your movements and as transparent as possible i knew all that going in and my first experience in dealing with the police is actually when i was uh, 16 years old and myself and uh, three friends were driving in the car and we were near howard university and the cops decided to pull us over we hadn't done anything there was no speeding going on there was no moving violation but we got pulled over and we all got told to get out of the car and so we all Then were, you know, plopped up against a fence and, and frisked and searched. And then they searched the car. And my friend, Richard, who was the driver, you know, even though he should have known better, he was upset. So he was, you know, kind of saying, what is all this about? And his cousin basically calmed him down. And the police eventually just let us go. There was no warning. There was no ticket. But the message had kind of been sent that you can get arrested for absolutely nothing. And if you don't act as calm as humanly possible, you could wind up in some strange circumstances. Over the years, I've been in cars multiple times where you get stopped and you don't get a ticket, you don't get a warning, and you're just kind of sitting there baffled by it. And I've always been calm and the people I've been with have always been calm about it, but it's always been an astonishing thing to happen to just be constantly stopped. At a family reunion in Saint Augustine, Florida, with my father and his brother, my uncle, who were both in their fifties, and we were on the highway, and we were probably driving maybe five miles per hour above the speed limit. The reality is that a bunch of people were speeding way faster than we were, but we were the only ones who got stopped and harassed by the cops. And I was like, "Man, I'm, I'm with these old guys, and we're still getting harassed by the cops." So I actually was a um, Freshman in college in Los Angeles in 1991 the Rodney King tape came out where Rodney King was getting beaten by these cops And it was all there on videotape. So, you know The person like me is like well, they, they got them on videotape. They're gonna get it this time and a year later They had the trial it was they moved it to Simi Valley and those cops got off and the city went up in flames and so it's actually kind of amazing, you know, basically 30 years 28 years later you know, all these videos are, you know, happening. And, you know, this, with George Floyd, it was just there and it was blatant. The guy had been in the police cruiser and got pulled out of the police cruiser and put on the pavement. And then the guy basically choked him out, essentially. To me, it was like Rodney King. It was like the most obvious scenario of police misconduct that you could have. Even the most skeptical person is like, well, that's crazy. That's kind of where we're at now you know, a 30 year journey. Videotapes are much more, you know, prevalent because of smartphones and some of the attention and reality of the situation has finally hit home for a lot of people who just didn't quite grasp it. But, you know, you ask any black man, they'll tell you, I mean, I can tell you of stories of friend after friend who had those stops like I've had, but some of those stops have been uglier where you get guns drawn on you. You I've had people who I wouldn't say they were arguing, but they were just trying to figure out what was going on. And then they just got arrested and taken downtown. I mean, it's just kind of a fraught relationship. And I think it's really all born out of a bad relationship between the African American community and the police, whether it was they were used to help control African Americans in the past or whether the way our society portrays African Americans now and things like the war on drugs is just constantly targeted. I mean, that's what happened with me when we were 16 year olds getting pulled over and getting searched left and right. It was like, they thought we had drugs. Only thing they could find on us were our wallets, but you know, they were just gonna give us that hard search.
0: When I was 29, I went out on a, you know, fun date. It was winter time. I hate winter, but I was, you know, wanting to go out. I was hungry, I was chilling. You know, I wanted to hang out with this person. So we went out and we're now driving back and he has a nice car, he has a BMW. And we see some cops park behind us, like at the stoplight or whatever. And he starts driving again off to the stoplight. And all of a sudden the lights come on, this whoop, whoop, you know, comes on. And I'm just like, what? Are we getting pulled over? He's like, yeah, we are. And I look at him. I'm like, oh, God. (laughs) Right. And he was just used to this. And I was the one like, what are we going to do? Like, What's happening? So they come up and I'm like, are your plates okay? Are your lights all right? your insurance is covered. Like everything's good. He's like, everything's fine. Like I paid everything. Everything's fine. I'm like, okay, don't worry. So he come up, they just ask him for his license and all that at first. And he's like, here you go, officer. He like knows with have his hands on the wheel and all that. And they immediately ask him like, where is it? What's in your car? And I was confused. I was very confused. I was like, what are they even asking you? Like what's in your car? What do they mean? Right. And he's like, I don't have anything in my car, officer. And he's just like, okay, all right, well, we're going to check. Get out the car. And I'm like, I know they're not literally having us get out the car. It is 14 degrees outside. And we step out. The officer tells us, hey, you two, sit over there on the ground, like on the actual curb. It had snowed a few days earlier. The ground had been plowed, the sidewalk and the street. So there was nothing on the sidewalk except like, smooshy, gray, salted snow. So I look at the ground and I had just gotten my nice black Calvin Kaline down coat dry cleaned. I had broken it out for the winter and I'm like, sitting on salt? No, that's not gonna fit what I need to do right now for my jacket to not be dirty. And so he tells us, he's like, you all sit over there. And I just had this feeling of like, I'm not sitting on the ground, right? Anyway, my friend, he just immediately sits on the ground, doesn't ask questions, doesn't say a word. I am this point, I'm getting very angry. And I stand there and I stare at him and I say this, and this is hilarious because I probably wouldn't do this today because I'd probably be too afraid. I just got my coat dry cleaned. It is all black and the sidewalk is salty. I cannot sit on the ground. My jacket will get salty. And he just looked at me confused. And I just looked right back at him just as confused. And I think he realized in that moment I was going to be more trouble than it was worth. So he just was like, whatever. So I'm just standing up looking mad. And he says, all right, we're going to search your car. And I'm like, but they haven't even told us yet why they pulled us over. So I'm still confused as to why we're even stopped. They didn't say your tail lights out or your registration isn't up to date. And he says, all right, we're gonna search your car. And they start going through the car. Oh boy, they start searching. I still don't know what they're searching for. (laughs) They didn't tell us. So they're searching, they're pulling, they're going in the trunk, they're going in the back, they're going at this. And after a thorough search of finding nothing, which, I'm not sure what they were looking for. I guess they were looking for drugs. I guess they were looking for guns. I don't know. They never said. They finally say, okay, well, one of your white lights over your license plate is out. So you have to get that fixed right away. He's like, absolutely, officer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll get that license plate little white thing fixed immediately. They're like, all right, you can go. So we go back into the car and he just snaps back like normal, like nothing happened. I am like seething (laughs) and he can see I'm different. He can see I'm just shaking mad. And he's like, don't worry about it. It's fine. We're not dead. And I'm like, is that a win for you? (laughs) He's like, we're not arrested. We're not beat and we're not dead. The night's still young. Don't let that ruin the night. And I was like, you have been so traumatized that you don't even understand and realize. He's like, no, I know it's messed up. He said, I was so thankful they found something wrong, like the little light. He said, because if they didn't find anything wrong that they could tell me I needed to go do, they would have made something wrong. They would have planted something. So I'm thankful. I was hoping a light was out. And I was like, well, okay, at least they found something. And my fear partially was that if they did find something, meaning put something in the car, I was interviewing at the time to become a lobbyist for the Sierra Club. And I was really counting on this job. I just saw all of that ending. And it wouldn't be because I did something wrong. It's because I went out on a date on a Friday with somebody whose car was a little too nice for him. And I knew at that moment I had no control. It didn't matter if I got my bachelor's from University of Maryland College Park. It didn't matter if I got my master's. It didn't matter if I had years of experience in my career. It didn't matter that I was light-skinned. None of that mattered in that moment because. Everything I have worked for, everything my parents have worked for, everything my community has worked for could be taken in a minute. And it would always be me against a cop. It would always be me saying, I didn't do this thing. And if a cop says you did it, then you did it.
1: Truth be damned. Thank you for listening to Our Future Now.